The Word of Mouth podcast is brought to you by Dartmouth-Hitchcock. Imagine nationally ranked healthcare in your community. With convenient locations throughout northern New England. World-class providers are closer than you think. Visit DartmouthHitchcock.org to learn more. Dartmouth-Hitchcock is here. Word of Mouth. 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 Mouth. This is Word of Mouth from NHPR. I'm Virginia Prescott. Yoga is a thing. If you had any doubt of its popularity, just Google yoga near you and see the astounding variety of classes. Hot yoga, prenatal yoga, classes that focus on fitness or breathing or laughter. There's even something called goat yoga. Despite that, and the fact that you don't need expensive gear or accessories, yoga culture can still seem exclusive or intimidating. That's where Jessamyn Stanley comes in. She does not fit the yoga instructor as skinny white woman stereotype. She is a black, self-styled fat femme. For the past several years, she's documented her own yoga practice and teaching to now 300,000 Instagram followers. And she's turned her internet celebrity into a book, Everybody Yoga. Hello, Jessamyn. Hey, Virginia. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. Well, I'm so glad you are because you write about starting off having this vague sense that yoga was not for you. And I think a lot of people get that. So what was it about the experience for you that was off-putting? Well, it was, you know, not to speak too crudely, but it was extremely hard for me. I found that the asana, the poses, seemed a borderline impossible. And I was surrounded by people who were much smaller than I was, and it seemed like everyone had the same outfit on and that I was just the odd person out who couldn't do anything, and I just totally thought, this is not going to be for me at all. And I actually, the very first time that I ever tried yoga, it was such a negative experience that I said, I'm not doing this, it's not for me, and I didn't try it again for another seven years. And when I did finally go back to it, I was in a very different place in my life. I was also really dealing with a a pretty severe period of depression. And one of my classmates, I was in graduate school at the time, and one of my classmates was like, oh my God, try Bikram yoga. You're going to love it. And I said, absolutely not. I've done it before. I know it's not for me. And she just wore me down and I went and I loved it. Everything about it was exactly as it had been that first time. It was still extremely difficult. I was still the fattest person. I still felt like I wasn't supposed to be there in certain ways. But I also, it gave me this opportunity to try in a way that I was not trying in my day-to-day life. It pushed me, without my consent in many cases, it pushed me out of my comfort zone and made me see myself and see the universe in a very different way. And as a result, that, that's really, that sensation is why I keep coming back to the practice. And you also found inclusion and guidance on Instagram. How did that happen? Well, I was I was practicing yoga at home, and I wanted to track my progress over time. One of the things that turns people off from a home practice is that you don't have anything. You don't have a teacher there that's telling you that what you're doing is correct. And this was before. Now Instagram is really popular, but back then Instagram was just, you know, 
a few yoga practitioners, a few teachers giving each other feedback. And I wanted to receive that kind of feedback. I wanted alignment tips. I wanted to feel like I was a part of a community outside of my, you know, local yoga community. And I realized over time that the response I was getting from people wasn't really like that much feedback about yoga. It was predominantly people saying, I didn't know fat people could do yoga. And I was just like, why do you think fat people can't do yoga? Fat people do all kinds of things. I'm not even the first fat black person to put pictures of themselves on Instagram. So I was just like, we have a major visibility problem here. There's a, there is a idea in our society that only slender, white, cisgender, heterosexual women practice yoga, and that's just not the case. And it just turned into a space where I could show that I'm not a unicorn. There are plenty of different body people who practice yoga. Well, Instagram, of course, is all about the visual. So how did you do that? You take photographs of yourself, what, on a timer doing poses? Well, when I first started taking them, I asked my roommate if she would take them for me, and she said absolutely not. And so I had to figure out a way to do it myself. And I used to use I mean, almost all of my favorite photos were just taken with my old Samsung phone. I used a a timer app called Self-Timer app. It's a 30-second timer. You take four photos at the end of 30 seconds. And, you know, it seems like you see one photo on Instagram and it's like, oh, wow, that's one beautiful moment in time. But in order to get that one photo, you have to take at least 50 photos. So I would do the asana over and over and over again. And, And I do still document my practice in that way, but... My The way that my Instagram is shaped now is very different than it was in the beginning, but it was always a very um, powerful meditation for me, the process of, you know, taking the photos and really breathing into the asana and, and really observing my body and the way that it moves. It's It's been a very important body positivity practice, honestly, and a very important self-care practice. Jessamyn Stanley's with us. She is a self-described fat femme, and she's also a teacher, Instagram celebrity, and now author of Everybody Yoga. It's a guide and introduction to yoga that is not restricted by body type or background. Well, I love your writing voice in this book. It's very friendly, kind of profane. You know, who gives a flying bleep if I'm not mastering a pose? You're right. But it feels very helpful in getting past what may be sometimes perceived as a very serious tone about one's focus and practice of yoga. Exactly. And that was a huge thing for me because so much of what annoys me about the yoga industry right now is that there's all this holier-than-thou speech going on. There's so many people that are like, "Mm, namaste, love and rainbows, look how perfect I am, look at my life. I've, I've started practicing yoga, and if you do what I did, then you can be perfect too. And it's just not like that at all. Really, yoga is about looking at the truth and looking at and being authentic and really just observing and so that you can accept. And that doesn't mean everything is going to be pretty all the time. It just means that everything is going to be honest. Mm-hmm. And in my opinion, that's really what, that's what the book is about. It's about honesty. And so I hope that people who read it, who maybe have felt like their lives aren't perfect enough to practice yoga, they're not flexible enough, they're not calm enough, they don't, they don't have the right um, mentality, they can't stay still long enough, that they can see a person who feels that exact same way and still practices yoga, because those are the ingredients. If you feel that way, that means that you're perfect to do this practice, not the other way around. 
Well, there is a deep emotional sense of self undertone to the book, but there's also a very sort of practical aspect, which means you're adapting certain poses by using blocks or other tools. And and you were just talking about, you know, accepting where you are, moving through it, changing your capacity to try a pose over and over again. So so if somebody says to you, I'm a big person, I'm, you know, don't have any background in yoga, where do you tell them to begin? I mean, I think that the best thing to do is to just throw yourself into it. There's a tendency, especially if you're fat body, to say, like, I need to go to a gentle class. I need to go to a beginner class. I need to find a teacher who knows how to work with my body. Throw yourself into something because the reality is that in the beginning, no matter where you are, no matter what your body looks like, you are not going to know what you're doing. You're going to be falling down. You're going to be sweating. You're going to be, like, feeling a lot of sensation, and you just need to be in an environment where it's okay to do that. So the most important thing really is to find an environment where you don't feel self-conscious and where the teacher isn't making you feel shameful about yourself and the other people in the room are not making you feel shameful. And that is really the key because the reason that people end up not wanting to go to a yoga class is because they're afraid of the other people who are in the room. Jessamyn, now you are a full-fledged yoga teacher. You are on a book tour that is, you get dates all over the place. Did you ever expect (laughs) that you'd eventually find your calling when you went to that first or I guess second class (laughs) yeah no definitely not and I actually I was really against becoming a yoga teacher for a very long time and because I didn't understand why I needed to be a teacher there are literally thousands of yoga teachers and my opinion about this has obviously shifted quite a bit but I feel as though I feel as though I have had an amazing gift to be able to live in my truth in this way at this point in my life. But I'm I'm not going to presume to know that, like, this is the be-all, end-all of my life. I have no idea what's coming next. Something can come in the next couple of years to completely turn all of this upside down. But what I do know to be true is that this yoga practice has completely altered the way that I see the universe. And I am going to continue to walk this path for as long as I'm meant to walk it. And if other people would like to practice with me along the way, then that's dope. But that's not really my motivating factor. Jessamyn Stanley, author of Everybody Yoga. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you so much for having me. She's going to be at the Boston Public Library for a talk and book signing on June 6th. You can find more information about that at wordofmouthradio.org. Word of Mouth. Word of Mouth. Word of Mouth. Word of Mouth. Mouth. This is Word of Mouth from NHPR. I'm Virginia Prescott. Yoga, which we talked about earlier in the show, is a practice that, for some people anyway, integrates the mind and the body. Our next guest, Damon Young, says that's what exercise is for. He's the author of an unlikely philosophical text called How to Think About Exercise, a book from the School of Life series. Damon is also Honorary Fellow in Philosophy at the University of Melbourne, and we spoke to him when the book was first released. And a pleasure to have you with us, Damon. Thank you. Thank you. This is a philosophy book about exercise, which sounds a little bit like an oxymoron. Is is that the point? Yes, in part. In fact, I wrote the book um, partly because people were so surprised that I, as a philosopher, would exercise, that I'd be 
you know, swinging kettlebells or indoor rock climbing or, uh, you know, punching on with a friend in the backyard doing karate. And I realized that there was some strange divide in people's minds that they thought that if you were um, an intellectual person, a bookish person, a, a curious person, that for some reason you, you wouldn't be interested in sport or exercise or fitness. That, that is that you were kind of disembodied. And I wanted to explore that a little further because I got the feeling that it was exiling some people from the from the commonwealth of of the body. Well, talk to me more about that divide, this kind of dualism of mind and body. How does that manifest? Well, it's often the idea that, for example, someone who is a sports person must be an idiot. Um, so <laughs> there was a wonderful caricature played by Brad Pitt in um, Burn After Reading, uh, the Coen Brothers film. Uh, he's he's just the the beautiful stereotypical jock, just kind of positive thinking mantras and oiled muscles, but he's thick as he's as dense as a, a bag of stones, and. This trope, this kind of metaphor permeates our culture and it's basically the idea that there are two realms uh, in the world. There's a realm of mind, of the soul, of spirit, of thought, and then there's a realm of bodies, flesh, carnality. And you get the sense that some people think of their bodies just as, as kind of machines that need to be tinkered with. So you go to the gym, you do your reps, it adds nothing to your intellectual life, your emotional life at all. It's just about kind of tuning up that body. And what happens is it's dull. It's boring. It adds nothing to their life. They leave. Um, what I'm suggesting in the book is that there are all kinds of um, enhancements to the intellect and enrichments to character in the imagination that you can get through your body. So you have to kind of bring your mind and your body together mindfully. So you're talking about integrating the thinking person and the athletic, the workout person, you know, the kind of philosopher athlete, which sounds to me kind of Greek. Is there a philosophical basis in this? Yes, there is. It, uh, what I do in the book is I go back to the Greeks, um, back to Socrates, for example. He was, of course, the teacher of Plato. Plato was the teacher of Aristotle. So these are the beginnings. And interestingly, in the dialogues of one historian and general, Xenophon, we find Socrates talking about the intellectual importance of the body. And there's another theme in the Greeks too, which I talk about, and it comes out uh, in the Iliad. There's a running race in the Iliad where um, <laughs> Odysseus beats Ajax. Mm -hmm. He basically wins by cheating. A god comes down and helps. But to the Greeks who are watching, it doesn't matter because it's an awesome thing to see people strive and compete and win. And what I'm suggesting is that we've often lost a sense that pride through your body is a good thing. There's nothing wrong with taking pleasure in yourself. Now, that might be the pleasure of running up a hill. It might be the pleasure of rock climbing. It might be the sublime sense of swimming. You don't have to get some kind of personal best to do this. You don't have to beat someone else. 
and you don't have to get an Olympian's body. Hmm. But let's let's go a little further with the pride, uh, which can sometimes cross over into a kind of narcissism. At one point in the book, you advise people to look at themselves in the mirror naked and experiment with different poses. Um, Okay, that could be self-torture for some of us, or it could be a kind of, I don't know, narcissism, couldn't it? <laughs> yeah, that's right. First of all, what I'm doing with that mirror is to get used to the, the way our self-esteem, our sense of our own uh, beauty or glory, is often dependent on our ideas of others. So that if you look at yourself naked and imagine someone who is an Olympic athlete, you're going to feel bad about yourself. And then if you imagine someone who is less fit than you, who might be softer than you, you might feel better about yourself. It's showing the arbitrariness of a lot of these feelings. But the second thing is when it comes to narcissism, yes, this is a, rare, a very real danger. And there are some correlations with some power sports um, and weightlifting. But I'm suggesting that an, an interest in the way you look is not a bad thing as long as you recognize that it's just the way you look. So I talk about the thrill that we get as humans from looking at new unities, harmonies, and forms in our bodies. It really is a thrill to watch new muscle groups coming out, the, the relationships, the proportions in our bodies. The problem is when we think that these muscular groups say anything else about us. They don't make us a better person. They don't make us more deserving of, of respect or sexual glory. They are simply a muscular development. Pride is one of the virtues of exercise with benefits that aren't always directly related to health. But one of the virtues you write about is a harder sell, and that is pain. You know, for those of us who do not have a God to come down and help us, isn't that why so many of us avoid working out this fear of pain? There's a scene in Roadhouse where Patrick Swayze is being sewn up without anesthetic. I just can't believe you're quoting Roadhouse now. <laughs> and uh, Swayze turns to this doctor and says, pain don't hurt. Now, it sounds glib and a little bit ludicrous, but in fact, he's right. There is evidence to show that the way we think about pain and the meaning of the situation changes how we feel that pain. Getting crunched in the abdomen when I'm doing martial arts and getting crunched when I trip over my son's Lego and fall on a couch, both of which have happened, mm -hmm. um, feel the same. It's the same impact on my body. In the case of tripping over and hitting my side, I'm furious, I'm angry, I'm ranting, you need to clean up your Lego. Uh, when it comes to martial arts, it's all just part of the fight. In fact, there's something bracing and invigorating about that very same strike. I'm not angry at my friend for punching me. I'm not saying that exercise won't hurt. It will hurt. What I'm suggesting is that when it's part of a meaningful activity that we are committed to, pain is less of a problem. And we may, in fact, welcome that pain um, as a sign that we are striving. Because you are talking about integrating mind and body, yeah? And a lot of people, when they're working out, they try to keep themselves distracted. You know, they watch television, maybe in the gym, or, or they listen to music with their earbuds in. You're not such a fan of that. Why? I'm not, I, I don't mind it at the gym. I, I think gyms can be quite sterile places. So if you're on a treadmill or you're on a, a stationary bike, 
you know, it might be fantastic to listen to a podcast or, or some stimulating music. But what I'm suggesting in the book, partly inspired by Charles Darwin, is that when you go for a walk or a run, you might want to actually engage your senses and allow the reverie that arises when you walk and run um, to be engaged with the stimulating world at a human pace. Because a lot of the time we're speeding around our neighborhoods or around the city behind glass, you know, at 55 miles an hour, we're not engaging with our world. Stop, take the time, see what's around you. You'd be surprised what you find. We're talking with Damon Young. He's a philosopher and author of How to Think About Exercise. Damon, who's this book for, though? Is it, I mean, I can imagine the soft intellectuals and armchair philosophers because it doesn't really seem like the kind of thing you'd find in the stack of, you know, Shape magazine or Men's Health magazines at, at Gold's Gym. Okay, I think there, there are a few audiences for this. The first are people who have defined themselves against the body, against fitness, against exercise, because they see these things as kind of annexed by jocks, hmm. um, mm-hmm. by, by thugs. And so they, they're alienated uh, from the fitness industry and often from, from their own bodies. Then there's another group of people who do go to the gym, who are interesting, curious, you know, bookish people. They have a rich intellectual life. But when they go to the gym, they switch their minds off. Now, for some people, this is fantastic. They've used their brain all day. They don't want to do it anymore. But there are a lot of people who give up at the gym, um, partly out of the the banality of it all. Mm -hmm. These are people who want mental stimulation. They crave good conversation. They're interested in rich ideas and impressions. But when they go to the gym, that all stops. So what I'm suggesting is, They need to remind themselves that there is the sublime in swimming. There is aesthetic richness in doing weights. There is pride in sprinting and reverie and running and so on. Then I think there's there's one last group. And these are the people who are outstanding athletes um, who are looking to broaden their intellectual life. These are the chads from Burn After Reading of the World who everyone's just said, man, you are so buff, you are swole, man. But what about their what about their ideas about art or music um, or ethics? So these people need to be given the chance to enrich their minds. So for all of those people who profess to want to exercise but complain that they just don't have the time, they maybe they are making intellectual pursuits. Do you think that's a legitimate argument? It's certainly true that it is difficult to find the time. You know, if you work, particularly if you have children or you're studying. Um, the first thing is to realize that physical striving is no less important than having a job. You are a body. You live through your body. Why not engage it thoughtfully? But secondly, you don't have to go to the gym. I know that if I had to go to the gym to work out, I would not work out. Um, this is partly because gyms are expensive, but it's also because I know I'd have to stop what I'm doing get in the car, drive to some place, change my uniform, engage in banter with people I may not like, and so on. I'm revealing a little bit more about my personality <laughs> here. A lot, of, a lot of my exercises are solitary. You'll pick that up in the book. Um, so a lot of the exercise I do is from home. I run around my own neighborhood. I do chin-ups and push-ups in my own home. I have kettlebells in the garage. So what I've done is I've 
integrated exercise into my daily routines. So it doesn't have to be something special. It's just something I do. Another way is to see obstacles as opportunities. Now, I know that sounds like a horrible self-help tagline. Um, You've not failed. You've just missed a chance for greatness. That's not (laughs) what I'm saying. What I'm suggesting is, um, you know, take the stairs in buildings and railways. It may be exhausting at first, but you'll feel awesome afterwards. Uh, If you're taking public transport, stop a couple of stops before when you get off and then walk the rest of the way. So if, if you want to see yourself enjoying exercise for the whole of your life rather than for the next six months, try to imagine those things that will keep you stimulated over the decades, not just the weeks. So that's not just going to be your personal best or sort of rock hard Olympian abs because you're probably not going to get those and it's fine to be realistic about that. Instead, what is going to stimulate your imagination? What is going to sharpen your intellect? What is going to give you a sense of pride? These are the things that keep people motivated um, over the years, Uh, not necessarily whether they can get a movie star body. Damon Young, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Damon Young there, Honorary Fellow in Philosophy at the University of Melbourne and author of How to Think About Exercise. This is Word of Mouth from NHPR. I'm Virginia Prescott. Well, we spent most of today's show talking about how to get out of our bubble and find mental and physical stimulation through exercise. But let's face it, a great deal of our lives are spent online. On this week's edition of The Bookshelf, host Peter Biello speaks to one local author who found inspiration for her novel on social media. In the age of social media, real intimacy can be hard to come by. We see superficial interaction all the time on Facebook and Twitter, but how often do people really take time to understand one another? In Manchester, author Jessica Park's new novel, 180 Seconds, a social media experiment brings together a shy young woman, Allison, and an outgoing social media star, Esben. Jessica Park joins me now to talk about her novel. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. So tell us about the experiment that brings together Allison and Esben. So the experiment involves Esben, who uh, has set up a table and two chairs facing each other. And the idea is that he sits on one side, Allison sits on the other, and they stare into each other's eyes for 180 seconds. No talking, no moving, nothing. And... The purpose is to see what kind of emotion you uh, bring, what, how you communicate without speaking. That's a hard thing to do, to look at someone for 180 seconds straight. It's a long time. Some people have a hard time making eye contact for five seconds. Three minutes, a lot can happen in three minutes. When you're in a situation like that, you're not just in your own head. You start to um, have a relationship and an experience with the person opposite from you, and you're, you're in it together. Did you see this book as, as a book about intimacy and the nature of intimacy? Yes, um, partly because Allison, at the beginning of the story, is so closed off and avoids intimacy. She, because of her background, she grew up in foster care. She was not adopted until she was 16. She had a lot of walls up, not a lot of good experiences with people, with humanity, and she's not interested in engaging with other people. So this experiment, I think for anyone would be, you know, a little uncomfortable. For her, it's 
terrifying. But it also is a turning point for her because she gets a taste of, you know, what it means to have a positive connection with somebody. So there's, you know, there's that piece. And there's also a lot of this book is really about finding the good in the world and the good in people when it's so easy to see the bad and to see how people mistreat each other and, and um, are unkind. But people can also be incredibly generous with each other and incredibly loving. I think social media is a perfect way to get at that idea, right? Because we see social media as this place where people make comments from the safety of being behind the screen. But as you write in this book, there's also a tremendous amount of generosity, uh, especially when Allison and her friend Steffi are going through a tough time. So do you share that belief that there's a lot of good on social media as well as in real life? Well, I, I do. I would say I've only come to that feeling more recently in certain ways because the bad stands out. I mean, everyone has seen the kind of comments under, you know, someone's post or an article. It is unbelievable how vicious people can be. I will say that when I started writing and getting nice reviews early on, I was um, a little shocked at how nice people could be. I think I'd gotten so used to people not being friendly to each other that I really was very touched by how generous and kind strangers could be. One of the things that inspired this book is so many viral uh, videos and you know other viral posts are founded in good. Some of them are very clickbaity. You know, we've right. seen the titles like "Man finds paper bag on his front porch. She won't believe what's inside." Right. <laughs> so sometimes it's something dumb that's inside the bag, but sometimes it's something good. Do you think social media? brings us closer, or does it assist in pushing people farther apart? I think it's kind of an equal battle. You know, I think I think we're pretty balanced there, that as much uh, people certainly disagree on the internet and have huge squabbles. A lot of times those squabbles are, you know, of course, with strangers. Uh, although you do often see Facebook posts from people saying, I'm no longer friends with so-and-so, you know, and I'm saying it here. And then we get to see a public battle. Uh, but so I think there's a balance. There's so many reasons for people to come together on the internet too. Take readers, for example. There are so many reader groups and uh, people sharing their love of uh, of different authors, different books, supporting each other. Um, and authors get so much support from readers online too. It's really a wonderful experience the way they come together. So I get to see so much so much love and so much positivity online, mm -hmm. as well as the bad stuff. Yeah. Uh, I want to go back once more to, to Allison because she's such a fascinating character. Uh, what was your inspiration for the character of Allison? This is always a hard question for me to answer about any of my characters. And my answer, really, it scares me to say this, but I don't know. And it frightens me because... I wonder, how am I going to write another book? How did I come up with this? I don't really know where it comes from. I think what often happens for me is that I picture a major scene that I would like to happen in a book um, or some kind of major feeling, and I focus on that first. I often listen to music that captures whatever feeling I want, and then I work backwards. And actually, the scene for... Uh, with the 180 seconds experiment was, uh, I'm sure many people have seen this video, and I always forget the name of the performance artist, but she did a, and it was done in a big stadium, and she sat at a table all day long, 
and people would come and sit in front of her for a minute. And there's a um, just amazing, it's amazing that they captured this. They had her, um, her ex-lover, as they call him in the video, uh, they had been together for years, they parted amicably and hadn't seen each other. And he comes and sits across from her, and it is unbelievable to see their expressions and the emotion and we're let into the history of their relationship and was very very touching well jessica park thank you very much for coming in and speaking about 180 seconds thank you so much for having me that's jessica park she's the author of the new novel 180 seconds and you can find a list of the top five books on jessica's bookshelf at nhpr.org Thanks so much for your listening time today. Music in this episode came to us from Revolution Void, Jason Leonard, The Marion Circle, and Yay Yay. Loads more to explore in here at wordofmouthradio.org. And pass it around. Everything goes further when shared by word of mouth. I'm Virginia Prescott. We will be back tomorrow, too, here on NHPR. NHPR.